Probably what I find personally funniest about this game is it came highly recommended from several friends of mine whose opinion on gaming I rather trust. And so I was like, okay, I'll, I'll think about looking into that. And then some of my viewers, about last year or so, were like, hey, Laura, you should totally play this game. And I'm like, okay, sure. So I went ahead and bought it. And then I played Yakuza 0 because I got Yakuza 0 and Sleeping Dogs confused. That is my fault, of course, and I mean no insult from it. But it's funny how the two games, you know, have a lot of similarities to each other. But I don't mean that as a derogatory, because both games are really, really good. I did have some issues with this game. The camera control just drove me nuts in certain sequences. But, and, and it, this game was really, really, really ugly. I don't mean it was visually unimpressive. I mean this game was ugly. This game had no problems whatsoever showcasing just how brutal and violent and cussing that life could be in, in this environment, in a criminal organization, which is um, very Grand Theft Auto-y. And that's the other thing I wanted to comment on really briefly. A lot of comparisons between Grand Theft Auto and this game can be made, and with good and bad reason. But I feel like that's being disingenuous. To say this is a Grand Theft Auto clone, well, frankly, that term doesn't really mean as much as it used to. But to say this is a Grand Theft Auto genre is missing some of the specifics that allow it its own particular flavor. Imagine for a moment, I usually go back to Grand Theft Auto 4, which is still one of the Grand Theft Autos that I remember most strongly because I've played it the most and done the most analysis work on it. So imagine Grand Theft Auto 4, except there's three really big distinctions in the playstyle. First of all, you can actually fight someone without using a gun. As in, there's a whole combat melee system, which is awesome, centered around being able to weave your attacks, your blocks, and your counters in order to make your way through the combat. The combat was a lot of fun, and probably one of my favorite overall aspects of the gameplay. Imagine also that you aren't limited. For those of you not aware who haven't played Grand Theft Auto games, generally, if there's like a wall or you know a, a building or whatever, it's functionally decorative. You can't go up it and you can't go on it. In Sleeping Dogs, you can actually climb over stuff and onto stuff, which allows it to feel more open and, once again, emphasizes the same thing the melee combat did. So here's the thing. In Grand Theft Auto games, generally, while you are playing a person, you're basically playing the car. Many of the missions are centered around vehicular or, you know, races, getting from point A to point B. Most of the travel is all about being in a car. A lot of the missions are all about being in a car, etc., etc. There are, of course, ground-based missions, but they're more in the minority as far as emphasis. Most of the ground-based stuff is for the cutscenes. Sleeping Dogs felt like the opposite. The car stuff was in the minority, and it's a lot more about the personal level of you, the individual. And I feel that that tonal shift helps a lot in making the game establish its own unique flavor. It doesn't quite fall into the Yakuza 0 territory, though, which is all about you being the individual, because there still are cars, and it's a much larger area you're going through. I love the three experience systems, too. I like... I like the idea of it, just on the the baseline, but I feel like it rewarded whatever playstyle you felt like going for. Do you feel like being, you know, the result? How do I put this? The cop experience was actually really easy to get. In fact, it was so easy to get, I was a little bit surprised by it. But the triad experience and the face experience, to me, felt like gamer ver uh, versus role player. Now, I don't want to force 
or enforce a false dichotomy because plenty of gamers are role players and vice versa. But one thing I've noticed many times in good game design is when you will be rewarded for being a decent person with something that doesn't really give you a tangible benefit in gameplay, and you'll be rewarded for being a terrible person by something that does give you a tangible benefit in gameplay. Because, generally speaking, more people in the former category want something intangible, and more people in the latter category want something tangible. No judgment, I'm not trying to say that that applies in all cases, but it's something I've seen many games do for many years. Uh, this is, this is a, not exactly a new concept, and I feel like they executed fairly well here. I have to admit, as is my usual for games like these, I basically railroaded my way to trying... Well, not railroaded, I, I, I tried as quickly as I could to get to the point where I had a nice suit... <laughs> from all my, you know, face experience, like, oh, yeah, you know, and had the, the businessman look going on, because I really like that look. I know, surprising. I also want to comment on the durability briefly. As I will mention in a game uh, that's coming out later, uh, Breath of the Wild, durability itself is not a bad mechanic. It is simply a mechanic. I think this game does a better job of using durability than Breath of the Wild did. Because, and I know this is going to sound like a weird comparison, but the game I kept being reminded of was Double Dragon. No, seriously, in Double Dragon, the game is about fighting, right? You trying to fight the individual that is in opposition to you, generally with your hands and your fist and whatever happens to be nearby. In other words, if you pick up a pipe or you pick up a sword or you pick up a knife or whatever, that is not intended to be this is now your weapon. This isn't Assassin's Creed, after all. This is, oh, improvisation, bam, bam, ah, it broke, okay, you know. And so the durability thing kind of flowed with combat better because once those weapons break, it doesn't matter that much because you still have other means of attacking. It also means that, you know, those kind of weapons tend to feel more like power-ups, temporary power-ups in a purely gameplay perspective, than they do, like, okay, I'm going to try and use this sword from now on. Like, in Breath of the Wild, for example, if you run out of weapons, you're screwed. You have the bombs, and that's it, right? Anyways. I also kind of liked how the game kept going a decent bit after you beat the final boss. By which I mean Mr. Tong, of course. Oh, by the way, I'm going to be trying really hard to pronounce these names correctly, but I've noticed that several actors in the game pronounce names different different ways. So, like, for example, um, Aunt Zhang is also pronounced Aunt Zhang. And so I'm going to go with Zhang because that's what uh, Shen said several times. So I'm going to assume that's the correct one. But please forgive me if I screw up any names. But Mr. Tong, uh, to me, he felt like the most direct... Uh, let's call it gameplay antagonist of the game. Obviously, there are other story antagonists. In fact, there are two, uh, Lee and Pendrew being the big ones, which I just mentioned. I don't know why I said that. There's two, and here's the big ones, and then I list two of them. Those are the two big other actual story antagonists. Um, but, and of course, Dog Eyes was earlier as well. But Tong feels like the one who is the most adept at taking out someone in a one-on-one -on -one battle. I actually personally think that Tong couldn't take Shen in a one-on-one -on -one fight that was fair. I, I don't think he is at that level of skill or competency. But it wasn't fair. He started off with a weapon, and Shen started off with um, barely recovering from horrible torture. So you could kind of see why this fight, you know, it was a little bit slanted in one direction. Nevertheless, as the enforcer, it's kind of the same reason why the enforcer should be the big, you know, the big boss in a game, not the manipulator or schemer, right? I mean, doesn't that make a degree of sense? So 
I have. I'm, I'm talking about this so long too because I really liked the Tong boss fight. There was a lot I could do with that fight. I actually ended up going through it relatively quickly, and I'm not even sure exactly how I did it. I ended up impaling him with the sword, which is funny because then it cuts to the cutscene where you're just beating his face, and I'm like, "Where's the sword?" Anyways. <clears throat> Shen's story, the, the predominant theme of the work, is very clearly, uh, oh god, I'm, I'm actually I'm try, having trouble summarizing this into a sentence, so please forgive me. The theme feels like this is, the, there's the triad, and then there's the, the, uh, there's the underworld and there's the overworld, let's just put it that way. Uh, I'll use my own Mass Effect uh, parallel here, because in Mass Effect 1, you're in the overworld, and Mass Effect 2, you're in the underworld. You see both sides of society. And we see that in this game as well, because as I mentioned back in Mass Effect 2, underworld does not necessarily mean criminals. Obviously, the triad operates in the, the metaphorical underworld here, but so do several other people who are not exactly criminals, or who are criminals, or who are evil, or whatever. Pendrew, of course, being the big, big example. By the way, I actually liked Pendrew. Uh, he wasn't a get-off-my-screen character. He was a character I loved to hate. Because he was voiced by Tom Wilkinson. Like, I'm, I'm dead serious. I think that's one of the biggest reasons why I was cool with that. Anywho. So, we see the, the underworld in its entirety as we go throughout this game, and we have glimpses of the overworld, which we don't really interact with all that often. Some of our cop buddies are decent, are straight cops, and basically all of our interactions with our civilians or anybody else, that's our, that's basically coming up for water. Coming up, wow, coming up for air before we dive back into the depths. This is a really good crime drama with an undercover drama. And I'm kind of talking about this a lot because I don't have a lot to say about specifics. There's a lot of brushstrokes, excellent use of brushstroke effect. There's a lot of little details here and there that add to the flavor of it. But ultimately, I don't have anything specific I can call out to say that was awesome. For example, of the characters in this game, of which there are many, there's only a few I really felt uh, worthy of comment on, which brings me back to Shen. Shen, of course, is someone who so easily sees, let's put it this way, he sees the good, the bad, and the in-between of the triads and the cops. He sees dirty cops, he sees Mr. Tong and Lee, he sees... Um, the good cops, I can't remember the one guy's name, he's a decent guy though, and he sees good triad members, Jackie being the most obvious example there. In fact, I felt like Jackie was probably the closest thing to a decent person in the entire game. And he sees people in the middle. Uh, uh, let's go and use this to segue. Lee felt like what I would call a typical, stereotypical, you know, fictional criminal gangster type. You know, someone who is ambitious and wants more and more power, but is ultimately a thug. Someone who doesn't have the kind of sophistication or long-term planning to really be able to climb that height and make it stick. The one thing Lee had going for him was the fact that he was completely immoral. He had kind of the Joker effect going for him. He was willing to go way farther than anyone else was and do way worse things than anyone else was. The, the wedding is a, plenty of an example of that. But there are other examples throughout the game as well. He just basically made a mess of everything because he didn't care. He didn't care about traditions. He didn't care about society. He didn't care about rules. He wasn't afraid of anyone. Even when you get to the final thing where he is gasping and panting and barely keeping on and he has been suffering this whole time, he still doesn't show any fear to Shen, even then, even when Shen feeds him to an ice shredder. Did I mention this game's kind of brutal? Yikes. 
Uh, I suppose that's appropriate for someone who breaks the ancient traditions of the uh, of the triad, though, being chopped up by hundreds of little. Never mind. Lee is contrasted most directly um, by Zhang. Sorry, <laughs> by Zhang, Aunt Zhang. It doesn't help that I have a really hard time saying the word aunt as well, because I want to say aunt. Anyways, so she was someone who was certainly not a good person, and I don't want to make it sound like she was. Instead, what I see in her is someone who is smart. There are several times in this game where she, she sees Shen, she sees Shen, jeez, and goes out of her way to not interfere with him. And in fact, goes out of her way to help him in several cases. The most obvious being her giving him the information to take out Pendrew in the very, in the finale. The very title of the game kind of came up when I was thinking about this because there's this one scene where she she has to have realized that Shen's a, a double agent, and she's like, "Huh," and then she moves on. Because and this is my interpretation, of course, but I think because she's smart enough to let sleeping dogs lie, that she understands the kind of force of nature that Shen is, that he is a basically a death machine. He would be a perfect enforcer in this kind of situation uh, amongst the triad, kind of like Tong was. And she knows well enough to not try and stick her head into that particular uh, metaphorical ice shredder. This is especially, again, going back to the ending, this is especially made true when they're watching him and she's, and they're like, what do we do? She's like, nothing. He was loyal to me. Drive on. <laughs> Considering how much Shen was involved in her rise to power, that makes sense. But from a, let's say, less forward-thinking kind of a criminal ind individual like, oh, I don't know, Lee... Lee in that position would have been like, all right, I did it. Well, now I have no more use for you, so I shall kill you because I'm a moron. Zhang uh, completely bypassed that. I found her to be one of the more interesting characters in this, if it's not obvious. I, I also want to talk about Jackie really quick. Like I mentioned, Jackie felt to me like one of the only decent people in the entire work. Jackie... Like, show in contrast the difference in how uh, Shin reacts to his first killing. He has, you know, the nightmares. And, ah, um, but then he gets over it. Jackie, he's like, oh, God. Blah. And then Shen's like, it's okay, it's okay. I got you, I got you. But Jackie never gets over it. Jackie continues to be bothered by that because, well, because Jackie's a decent sort. It takes a special kind of mindset to kill someone in cold blood. I've, I've said this many times, especially in such a personal way. And Jackie never got over that. This is one of the reasons why the finale of this game pissed me off so much. Like, not in a bad way. That's why I say that jokingly. It's like, you son of a submariner! Because they killed Jackie! Oh my god, like the one decent spot of brightness in this whole freaking crime-riddled city. And you just... And they, he was tortured horribly. And, oh my god. And then the way Tong just is like, slice, slice, slice. Yep, yep. Even references... One little thing, Tong says, uh, you know, the last time I uh, had a cop in here, he lasted 48 hours. What do you want to bet that was Ho? Which reminds me of a question. Do you think Pendrew sold out Ho? I'm not sure why he would have done that, but I kept being left with the overwhelming impression that Pendrew would have done that. It's just, he seems like that kind of manipulator and schemer who would be more than willing to sell out someone in order to reposition things to to take down the triad. I'm going to clean up this city. 
Which brings me to my second question about Pendrew. And as ever, I would love to hear your comments on this. Do you think he... What do you think his motives were? He himself says that he's just willing to do whatever is necessary, anything I have to do, in order to save this city, in order to clean up this city, make it better. That's what I'm going to do. I'm, I don't know why I'm using this accent. I can't do British. I'm sorry. I can't do British. Anything I have to do, I will do it, whatever is necessary. You know, I, I can't do British. Do you think that was actually his motive? Or do you think there was some selfishness involved there? Now, I don't mean necessarily for power, but one of the things I got the strong impression was that he really loved the, let's call it the accolades. He loved the praise. He loved being the one to bring them in, the one to be able to go, yeah, that was me around the office, right? You probably know what I'm talking about. I bet you can name someone from your real life, whether you work at a fast food place or an office building or a retail store or as a janitor. I'm using my own real life job experiences here because I can name someone at every single one of those jobs who was like that. They would go out of their way to do basically dickish things just because they wanted the accolades. They wanted to be the one to be praised. There's no tangible benefits there. But they get to say, yep, I'm the one who brought down such and such. That was me. Pretend this is British. That was me. That's my theory. That's what I got out of Pendrew. He probably got decent money kickbacks from certain things, but the way he went after Uncle Poe especially makes me think, all right, no. This is someone who is purely in it for the glory, the ego, and the uh, furnishment thereof. (sighs) One of the things that I was left thinking about towards the end of this game was how I like how believable it was. I would almost say realistic. It did go a little bit too far into realism territory for me on several occasions. I'm sorry, that I've referenced it already, but that torture scene with Tong was terrifying. But that being said, I love how most of the things that happen happen because they make sense, because they are logical conclusions of the sequences of events in the game. It, 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 it makes that theme, the underworld theme, predominantly going throughout the whole thing, have more impact. If there were the cartoonishly evil, the laughably naive, and that was it, then it would just be like, okay, that might be fun, because Lord knows the gameplay was tons of fun, but I wouldn't be as invested in it. By the end of the game, I was like, oh, God, uh, this, and, oh, Jesus, you know, I cared. I cared. Very, very good game. Highly recommended if you haven't played it. Um... I didn't play the end of the DLCs. I wanted, I wanted to mention that. I actually mentioned that, mentioned that earlier. Sorry. I didn't have that version, and I was a little bit stripped for time, especially for how long this game was. I do hope, nevertheless, that you have enjoyed my thoughts on this. I'll see you guys next time.